0: Hello. Yes, I know I said I would be uh, editing and releasing the vegetarian vampire episodes before I got around to the Hogfather ones, and I am still doing that, if anyone cares. Uh, But there's a lot to work through there, and yeah, this um, Hogfather episode, the the first of two that I'm planning to do about the book, just came together very quickly and very smoothly. No computers died in the middle of it, which was a nice refreshing change. Um, So here it is. If you are listening to this on the regular feed, this will just be a quick preview of the first part of the episode and then the full episode, uh, which is about two hours long, will be dropping in a week or so as usual. Uh, But if you want to listen to that now, you can go to patreon.com slash unseenacademicals or follow the link in the description and sign up there to get immediate access to the full episode as well as early access to all future episodes as well. All of the eight cheaper positions are now taken, and I want to take a moment here to thank everyone. So thank you to Jess, Dan, Gabriel, other Dan, Jason, Adele, BJ, and Liz. They are the Council of Eight who are helping keep this thing afloat. Uh, I did find out that the uh, podcast host that I am currently using is shutting down at the start of next year, so I may have to start uh, paying to host this, so if that is the case, then the Patreon memberships will certainly help. Yes, thanks to everyone who has signed up so far. Thanks to everyone who will sign up in the future, and extra special thanks to Nadav, my co-host for this episode, who brought a really interesting perspective and some great insights to our analysis of Hogfather. So I'm very thankful to have had him on for this one, and hope to get him back for some future ones as well. Um, But yeah, I'll shut up now, and you can listen to it. Thanks again. It's Discord! It's Discord! world podcast analysis yeah so i'm josh and i'm Nedav. dove and we are your Unseen Academicals for today, and we are here to talk about 1996's Hogfather, the fourth book in the death series and the 20th overall Discworld novel, uh, wherein death sets Susan upon a ragtag group of criminals and dresses up as the Hogfather in order to forestall an assassination attempt orchestrated by the auditors to prevent the sun from coming up ever again. And uh, for this episode, there's going to be two parts. For this one, we are going to be using the book to analyse the characters of Susan and uh, Tiatome, as well as discussing the Nature of Justice, The Power of Belief, Falling Angels, Rising Apes, kicker Guardian, Existentialism, Lies to Children. And then we're going to finish by looking at some recent psychological studies about children's belief in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. And then in the second episode, um, I'll be talking about uh, the interactions of Christmas and the literary tradition. But before we get any, into any of the belief stuff today, we need to introduce uh you, So, if you want to tell us a bit about yourself, um, your academic background. And more importantly, your background with Pratchett. Hi,
1: everyone. My name is Natab. Uh, I'm a Natab Fellow at Victoria University primarily in the Sir Zelman Cowan Centre of all things in the law school. I'm also a partner at Man Lawyers. I'm Jewish the extent that it matters. The truth is that it is interesting to have to look at this from uh, the perspective uh, of Christmas as a cultural rather than a religious feature. Yes. I think it's it's fun for Pratchett because for him, Christmas isn't a religious event, but he's uh, writing in the context of Christmas as a religious uh, um, social event and is looking at that from the outside in. Uh, which I think is much more true 30 years ago in England than it was today, where, Uh you know, that's a time when things were even closed on Christmas. My early research interests going back very far were focused on literature and the development of statistical models for understanding modern literary tropes. And I'm particularly grateful for Josh for having taken some of my early research and turned it into something uh, um, unembarrassing and, in fact, quite spectacular. Anyone who has a chance to see Josh's work on vampire tropes is uh, something quite Quite special. Since then, I've done a lot of work on comparative uh, um, religious principles in law as well as international conflict resolution but uh, the opportunity to come back to Pratchett uh, in a in a wonderful way and uh, uh, and look at things again is one that I couldn't pass up.
0: Yes, listeners of, of the show will be incidentally familiar with you and that, yes, as you mentioned it is your fault that I haven't shut up about vampires for about a year or so because you made the original tropes list that I have not had um, time to expand or work on since I um last showed it to you, but there have been increasing um, pages and pages of of actual films and, and book documentation. I think I'm up to 130 films now, so it's getting a bit out of hand, but at mm-hmm. some point, once my book is finished, I will um, have time to actually fill that out.
1: Pratchett is an excellent segue from any a- analysis of tropes because uh, more than almost any other popular author, uh, Pratchett has an excellent understanding, appreciation and a, a wink and a nod to those elements of tropes in, in modern literature, as well as uh, traditional elements across uh, so much of, of um, folklore as well. So I think that uh, in terms of um, giving a, a, a spiritual successor, a successory nod to people like Stoker that were playing with folklore in a serious way, Pratchett does so, but with much more of a wink and a nod and a nudge to a more knowing audience
0: and also in terms of uh you being a precursor to to my studies because yes i know you because you are a previous student of of my phd supervisor patrick and that's who you did the the vampire stuff with But you told me um years before i came along you were pestering him with um essays about Discworld and uh specifically death
1: that's right i uh, i managed to get away with a, a, a fair bit in terms of uh, using pratchett actually going all the way back to high school my first sax i managed to have uh, as Uh, papers on Pratchett and the development of the idea of of death as a literary uh, figure with a personality Um, so I have much to thank Mort for Mm -hmm. as a book that was first introduced to me uh, nearly 30 years ago Uh, um, and on to today it's been a significant uh, influence certainly in my research and studies and uh, I hope that comes through that uh, I approach Pratchett with an enormous amount of thanks, someone who not only uh, wrote great books but also books that help people think and certainly me think about literature itself uh, in a way that um, so much of popular fiction doesn't do. Uh, Pratchett is the, the key of being both fun and provoking thought. I think the Hogfire is one of his most thoughtful books actually because it makes us really think about uh, uh, the way we look at the world around us.
0: Uh, yes I was very happy to have uh, you on for this one um, and I specifically asked you given your um, background in comparative religious things but yes it's interesting to have you here because you are Jewish and I am not so so we're going to be looking at this from you know two different perspectives and as you were saying looking at it and the interactions with Christmas and belief as as cultural traditions but also it seems like uh it was meant to be somewhat because after I asked you to come on this podcast you randomly stumbled upon a copy of Hogfather in the middle of the street or something didn't you <laughs> that,
1: that's right huh. my 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 dear wife uh, um knew that I liked Terry Pratchett and uh since we moved overseas I unfortunately couldn't bring my uh full set of hardcovers with me, my Pratchett hardcovers are languishing in a family library uh, in Australia Uh, but my wife uh, popped up and said, guess what I found downstairs in our free little library someone had just put Hogfather there the day that uh, that you Josh asked me to uh, to, uh, do the podcast. So I have a recycled copy and I think it's wonderful because a much loved copy is always better than than the cold sterile new print Um, and uh, this one is part its way around again and again. Uh, it's an American print, actually, the one I'm, I'm looking for. And there are always those slight differences between the American and the, and the British editions, um, which, uh, which pop up here and there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, uh, excellent timing and an excellent uh, impetus really to come back to. I don't, I don't think it's the funniest of, of the uh, early Pratchett's, but I think it's certainly the most um, self-referential and self-knowing okay. of, his, of his
0: early books. I mean, you've already sort of uh, prompted the discussion about the book, but um, to kick us off as we get into Hogfather, in honour of the RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast, could I get you to name two things you liked about the book and one thing you did not, please? Well,
1: I have to say the thing I really like about the book more than, more than most other practices is the way that the minor characters have uh, more substantial roles. A lot of the Pratchett books are just driven by a, a centralised narrative. Most of the Vimes uh, series, I think, are really focused around one. But here there isn't really a character that, that dominates. It's very much a series of, of well-balanced uh, um, stories that move the story along. I really appreciated that uh, um, much more difficult narrative challenge that uh, Pratchett has taken on and, and really delivers. I also really like the way that he is so self-referential because uh, characters like Death, that are created uh, in earlier books now have rules to their existence and operation. And it seems to me that Pratchett is asking what if about the world that he has created with its own what if rules. I think that's just delightful. But if if I think there's one flaw of the book, the one thing I don't like is that the the characters, and this is the Indiana Jones flaw, as they say, um, the characters in the book aren't really so instrumental to the ultimate victory of good in this particular case. Something Uh, seem almost accidental and inevitable. Uh, Unlike um, in many of the other books, the role of the hero, the killing blow, so to speak, is struck. Here, our end uh, um, seems to be what would always happen, particularly the events at the Tower, uh, are less planned, less, uh, um, if I could say, brilliant than in many other Pratchett works.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Um, And we've got a bit about that when we discuss Susan, so I'll leave it for them. But that does sort of um, pivot into the things I liked and Liked about the book because my number one thing that I like about this book is this is my favourite portrayal of of Susan. I think I like Susan's character in this book, and I particularly like, as we'll discuss, that I, I was going to say she plays a more active and causal role in the story. She seems less sideline than she does in, especially in um, soul music but even Thief of Time which revolves around her a bit more she's not really the the focus of that book um, it's more Lobsang's story and she's just there to facilitate that whereas here this seems like it is Susan who is going and doing the things including um, confronting uh, Tea Time but we'll get into that a bit more later on Do you like Susan as a character? I for a long time thought Susan was my favourite Discworld character and coming back to it I don't know if, if she's well enough developed to take that mantle. But in terms of the idea of a character, the, you know, half-mortal granddaughter of death um, is a pretty, pretty cool premise because the second thing I like about this book is all the goth shit. <laughs> just that this is a book about a big castle of bones and, and assassins and um, sword fights and things like that just plugs into into the type of things I, I like about it. So, yeah, Susan is a character that I have always been very fond of. I'm trying to think, who would my favourite Discworld character be? I mean, having gone through the, the Witches series... Like that's the first series we did. McGrath's right up there now. She was a character I'd never had any real time mm-hmm. for the first couple of times going through the series and then going back, I've, I've become a big McGrath fanboy. So uh, she'd be right up there at the moment.
1: I admit to, uh, to a fondness for Death himself. Yeah. Uh, uh, I grew up as a frustrated violinist and it, uh, understanding that the, the idea that uh, someone could play but not make music was something that uh, unfortunately I had too much personal sympathy for uh, as one of those questions. Uh, Death. Death is a character who's perpetually observing uh, and observing sympathetically a world, that he knows he can't be part of. I think is uh, ironically uh, sympathetic, and I keep using that word, but he has empathy for something that he could so easily, and that we would instinctively divorce ourselves from. Almost, uh, um, you know, looking at the classic portrayals of death, uh, where death's prey. That isn't the case for, for for this Discworld death. But you mentioned that that um, uh, origin of, of Susan and, and why you like her. Uh, <laughs> In in this novel, which part of Susan do you think is is really dominating, the the human or the adopted uh, immortal?
0: Hmm, that is an interesting one, and my instinct is to say is to say both and have it as a as an arc of Soul Music is when she is most human, and Thief of Time is when she is most immortal, and then this is the transition point in the middle. Uh, let me think about that one because the first thing we're going to discuss in a second is Susan's function in the story. So maybe after we've gone through that, we can revisit this question. I, I might have a more um considered a definitive answer for you. But as far as the one thing that I dislike about Hogfather, I have two. I guess more more specifically, I don't like the chase scene at the end where she has to like ride the Hogfather and things like it's a good scene or whatever, but it feels very tacked on, like the story's already over and then oh we've got to do this. And it's like if you didn't get the metaphor, here it is like spelt out. It seems a bit preachy and obvious, whereas the rest of the book has been much better at putting some of that stuff across. So to me that's always felt a bit unnecessary. But the thing I really don't like about Hogfather is I hate Christmas. I really don't care about Christmas at all. So I will be talking more about this in the in the second part that I'll do. But all of this is great and then I have to go, no, oh, it's about how good Christmas is. And that sort of bogs me down a bit.
1: There, I think, uh, um, is a fascinating question because I think that, that that really the the core of Hogfather is a is a duality, everything through two lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really think that's the theme. So, is Christmas um, the holiday, i.e., uh, an event in the form of Hogswatch, where we're taking the opportunity to be uh, uh, crass and, and commercial, so to speak, or to put it, you know, in less Coca Cola ish terms, uh, uh, a an event where people are taking time to be with their family because that's the structure of society. Or is it a festival built on a religious belief? You know, I I can't engage with Christmas as the latter because for me it isn't it isn't a point of belief. You know, it's just usually accidentally one of the eight days of Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, the former doesn't seem to be inherently Christmassy, just coincidentally Christmassy.
0: Um, I mean, I I am not a believer, so I don't have the religious connotations to it. Um, and it doesn't like they don't really bother me. Like it's there's plenty of holidays and festivals and things. I guess this one bugs me because it's the one I'm expected to care about and really it's just on top of the crass commercialization everything i guess less than that it's that you're told and and we're told in this book that Christmas is this great time of year for giving and family and everything. And I've, I've been told that for 30 years and I've never actually seen it. I mean, I don't have the best family life, so this might be my, my perspective and all of that, but I've just, everything I've ever been told Christmas or the holiday season is meant to be, I've never actually seen. And it's just, yeah, something that you're repetitively told that I don't think people actually practice.
1: I have to say, that's one of my favourite things about the book. Okay. Is that to 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 take a, to take a, a, a practice Ratchetism. The Hogfather takes the whittle out of Christmas
0: Okay. in
1: in the sense that there are so many elements of Christmas that are held up for gentle chiving, asking people what's really going on, the the, the commercial scenes, you know, oh, well, the, pre- the presents are to give away, but only after they're bought. I, I found that as someone who has uh, been forced to endure far too many Christmas movies without them ever mm. speaking about me or to me in that way, I, I, I found that the, the dissection of Christmas into the elements to be touching in one sense, but also uh, sympathetic from a, 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 a non-believer like Pratchett. You know, I think the only people who really get a, a get a hogs watch in the truest sense of the word this year in this, in this book are the beggars. I think they get the best hogs watch of all.
0: Yeah, I just don't see that in the real world. It's something that happens in Hogfather and Dickens, and I don't see it in my real life. Mm. But yes, more about that in part two. So the way we've been starting off these podcasts is um, to go through uh, Andrew M. Butler's reviews in his Pocket Essential Guide to Pratchett or whatever it's called. Are you familiar with this book?
1: Not enough. I have had a look at his review of um, of Hogfather.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think he's a little a little harsh. Yes. I think the joke in Hogfather is, is more fundamental than he gives it credit for. Um,
0: yeah, he's been quite harsh on the Death series as a whole. I found coming out of he was very high on all the Witches books. And then I think he gave more a good review, gave Reaper Man a, a three out of five um, and was pretty critical of it, uh, was even more critical of, of soul music. And then I was expecting a rave review about this book, but um, he has rated Hogfather three out of five again and said it is remarkably cosmic, but stops being comic and and that it is inventive rather than side-splitting. So, yeah, he's saying this book isn't as funny as the other ones, so therefore it's not as good, which I think is putting more emphasis on the comic value rather than the, the other things that I think have value in their own ways there. Uh, but you're saying you think this book is quite funny.
1: Yes. I I don't think it's side-splitting uh, um, very often, though there are moments that I remember the first time I read it and rereading it, I was chuckling and chuckling in inappropriate locations as it happened to be, including um, including classes at the time um, when I probably shouldn't have been reading a book under the table, but that's what those great, just right size Pratchett editions were excellent for, even back in the day. Uh, I found that the stuff with the beggars to be really uh, um, slapstick comedy. Uh, at the time when I first actually uh, read Hogfather, I was working as a waiter. That was the year right. I started working as a waiter. So I found that the, uh, the rest Restaurant stuff to be um, well not personally relevant in the sense that we weren't selling old shoes as fresh food but but I found that those interludes to be wonderful visually uh, evocative uh, comedy but the whole Hogfather uh, itself is is a wonderful joke. Wrapped in you know so many so many in jokes. I think it's a joke book for people who really like Terry Pratchett. If you're really into Pratchett, it's much funnier because you see the way that Terry Pratchett is connecting himself with his other works and his other books to to an excellent degree. Uh, And I think that the second time you read you know Pratchett, Hogfather becomes deeper because it's the one festival that keeps reoccurring again and again within within the works. Um, You know the the irony that you've got death. this state character is now dressing himself up as Christmas in order to, to you know, save the world. I just think it's fantastic. Uh, I think that's a hilarious concept.
0: Yeah, as much as I do think like the sort of main narrative, the the Susan and and you know, I've been saying tea time, but I'm going to be respectful and say tea atomy, uh, is is very not not dry, but is serious. Like it is a serious, shouldn't sort of story. But yeah, everything around it, the, the scenes with Death actually being the Hogfather, I think, are very funny, especially with Albert. It being the um, elf and things uh, you mentioned the beggars but also we, we have the wizards who as they have been in Reaper Man and, um, and Mort as well are uh, in all these death books as this like the, I think this is the most self-serious of Pratchett's sub-series like he's engaging with metaphysics and things here but every single time there is a wizard subplot that is the slapstick comedy thing and it doesn't always work like I think I was pretty down on the one in Reaper Man here I, I don't understand the wizard's subplot about the shower and everything I have no idea what that has to do with anything and I don't really get it, but I found it very amusing and very funny. And if I can add another thing to the list of things I particularly liked about the book, who's the, I can't remember her name now, but the, the fairy that they imagine into existence, the like cheerful fairy.
1: Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I thought you were going for the Veruca nome. No, not
0: the Veruca nome. Um, The cheerful fairy. Yeah, I just found all the scenes with her and the wizards trying desperately to please her. I found all of those very, very amusing. So I think there's still plenty of funny stuff here. And yeah, I was surprised to see that Butler was so down of it, because I think in general, this is considered one of the best and most definitive Discworld novels, uh, which might have more to do with the fact that it has had the most successful um, TV film adaptation now, um, but definitely a, a landmark book in the series, I think. And for me, I don't know if it would be right up there. I don't think it would make my personal top 10, but it'd be sitting right outside it. But I think if you were to sort of gauge general reception of Discworld books, and I'm, I have no data to back this up, I'm just going off fives and things, but I think this would... Could certainly be in the general top ten, if not the top five, of, of Discord books. That is my perception of it. So I was a bit shocked when Butler was so down on it.
1: Mm. Just taking each of those criticisms, uh, I think you, you summarised a, a very interesting quote: "Remarkably comic, cosmic, but stops being comic. Inventive rather than side-splitting." Uh, and taking each of those, do you see this as a, as really a, a cosmic work, work, compared to say Reaper Man?
0: You'd have to define cosmic because it's it's certainly metaphysical. I mean, the whole thing is that the world exists because we believe in Christmas, right? Like that is the the moral of it. So in that sense, it's cosmic. Mm. Um, In terms of the actual plot itself, n- not as much as something like Reaper Man or even more, and certainly not mm. Thief of Time.
1: Yeah. I, I I found Reaper Man to be much more philosophical in terms of things like the meaning of life. I, I think, at least for, for me, Hogfather was more a statement of why life is good or mm why it's worth it as opposed to what is life, what is meaning.
0: Yes, it's it's more of a um I don't know another word word for it, but it is less ontological. Like it's not talking about yes. what things are. It's about making value out of out of things rather than making them exist. Yes. Yeah, that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. I get that. Yes.
1: But some of the some of the books I think uh um uh, in the series, in the Brighter series as well as within the Death series are stepping stones for Pratchett's development of later ideas. Uh yeah. I think Mort is incidental, the character are much more off the shelf. But here in Hogfather, the character, particularly of Death, gains uh, 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 not just a new attitude to the world, but uh, new depth that enables so much of the later comedy in the series to work. I don't think a lot of other Pratchett novels can work as well if you didn't have Hogfather, which is quite ironic, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, the whole point of this book is to say that if you don't have the Hogfather, so much of the world doesn't work. Uh, It's also true for Pratchett's own development of his universe and its
0: rules. You're sort of talking about it as the the starting point, and I think earlier you referred to it as a an early Discord novel, which it technically is because it's number 20, so it's just in the first half of the series. But when when I think of um, early Pratchett, I think of, like, it's the first 10. They're the parody slapstick ones. And then as we've discussed through the podcast, he really – I think the pivotal books are Reaper Man, Witches Abroad, and Small Gods that all happen in a row. That's books 11, 12, 13. And they're the ones where he goes, okay, this world's its own thing, um, and we're making um, sort of serious points rather than just parodying things and then that that run of books 11 through 20 I think is the strongest set of books in the in the series and probably the the most uh, well-remembered ones, but you've got things. So just to go through them, you've got Reaper Man, Witches is Broad, Small Gods, Lords and Ladies, Men at Arms, Soul Music, Interesting Times, so there's a bit of a weaker one there, Masquerade, um, Feet of Clay, which has become one of my absolute favourite project books, and then Hogfather there at number 20. So to me, it's almost like this is the culmination of that thread where he has gone more, um, I guess, serious, and that doesn't mean less funny, but more serious, more introspective, more metaphysical and that, that sort of, yeah, culminates in Hogfather rather than this being a jumping-off point for the the later novels. That's how I would look at it. Well, I agree with you.
1: I think Feet of Clay is one the strongest. Mm-hmm. But to me, some at least some of the ideas, uh, um, uh, particularly in the character, forgive me for saying tea time uh, because that's just still too well imprinted in my brain, as mm-hmm. opposed to Tame. Uh, some of those ideas uh, and the development of the um, question, if you like, of radical analysis and radical reality, Manifest later in in other books, particularly Night Watch, which for me I, mm-hmm. I think is one of the strongest books in the whole series. But uh, um, if we look at the character of of um, uh, Carver, the villain in uh, in Night Watch, I think he's got strong parallels to Tea Time. Definitely, and Tea Time is a is a is a precursor. For so the uh, ideas lately developed, uh, um what Pratchett, well, I think, once called the totally sane man, the mm-hmm. person who sees reality exactly as it is, who recognizes all of the rules of society and chooses selectively whether to embrace or comply with them or not. Uh, um, and that, uh, I think, for many elements, is what T-Time is. He is the the um, evolutionary step uh, because T-Time still does have some mores that he engages with, even if uh, uh, only to pick them up, examine them and discard them. He's still somewhat connected with society in in, in bits and pieces, uh, um, you know, though he is marching away from it at rapid pace. And he still seems to be a young man in this novel. I know uh, we're leaping forward into what we We'll deal with later. But I think it's it's a, a fantastic
0: book. Yes. I want to begin by talking about Susan, because the episode um, that I've released previously on um, Soul Music was all about her side of the story. And there was a lot of um, sort of criticisms and analysis of her character to do with that book. Um, so before we get into the broader belief side of things, um, the thematic side of Hogfather, I, I do want to spend a bit of time looking at her character specifically, because as I said at the top, I think this is the Susan book for me. And there's only three, which is to say, you know, that's another reason why maybe she's not um, the best character in Discworld. But yeah, I I do think this is the one where she plays the most active and involved role in the story. And and I want to revisit something that um, I said in the um, previous episodes on Salt Music, because I made the bold claim that Susan is not on any of the covers for any of the the death books, and that's another reason why she's overlooked. I mean, I did acknowledge she's in the background of Thief of Time, but she's not a focal point. But I am in Correct about that. She's on the cover of Hogfather in that there is a girl in the sleigh who is holding a scythe. And this girl is referred to as Susan by all the secondary literature I can find that uh, analyzes this um, work, including Butler and also... Um, in the art book it's not Kirby himself who says it's Susan at the the commentary but it's just assumed that because that girl is holding the sight, that she must be Susan which given Kirby's inaccurate portrayals of every other character that he's ever put on a cover it probably is Susan Um, I've always thought that was the Tooth Fairy because the group of characters are like she's next to the wizard and Banjo who the Tooth Fairy hangs out with rather than Susan and if we are going to go by just physical description like that character looks nothing like Susan um, but does look like what I imagine another character in the book to be. Like, she's very fairy-looking. I would think if it was Susan, you would at least put her in a black robe or something. So, it seems like, yes, Susan is on the cover, Um, but as far as my headcanon goes, I think that's the Tooth Fairy.
1: Well, it's interesting to mention, there have been quite a lot of covers uh, put out (laughs) for Hogfather. Um, Most of them, uh, and certainly the the version that I have, uh, the American uh, uh, one, uh, focus on death. Uh, And so, I'm looking, for example, at a cover uh, which has uh, a series of, well, they're supposed to be pigs, but to me they look like a cross with a killer bunny uh, and Death riding a sleigh behind them. And most of the covers that I've seen tend to uh, tend to follow that uh, approach um, without much emphasis on Susan at all. Death seems to be the star in almost all of the covers.
0: And yeah, I, I think we see a, a remarkable development in Susan's character between Soul Music and this one. Like In Soul Music, she is sort of an underdone, childish, sort of peripheral character. And Pratchett's talked in interviews about how Susan developed across her books into a kind of goth Mary Poppins, which I think is a, a pretty accurate description of her character, perhaps more so in um, Thief of Time than here. And and I talked last episode when discussing some of the inspirations for Susan's character about how the original Doctor Who companion um, was the Doctor's granddaughter Susan, and how Pratchett has denied her as an inspiration. In Hogfather, though, we get a passage about how Susan is used to the idea of buildings that were bigger on the inside than the outside, uh, since her grandfather had had never been able to get the handle of, of dimensions so this is definitely a reference to Doctor Who but I don't know if it is a knowing gesture towards like Susan's connection there um, I, I'm not I'm a bad science fiction scholar and that I don't care and have never really got involved in Doctor Who at all um, are you a Doctor Who guy uh, uh, once upon a time right uh,
1: I, I can't say that uh, the latest um, uh, permutations have, have kept me engaged as much as the 70s and 80s era did I'm not sure though just how original uh, um, that bigger on the inside, and uh-huh. outside uh, concept is. In fact, uh, uh, putting putting a, a Jewish mysticism hat on, um, the uh, the Holy of Holies was defined as being bigger on the inside than on the outside. Right. Um, Pratchett's denied it, and I'm I'm tempted to give him credit uh, for
0: mm. it. Um, yes, I, I have never really got on board with Doctor Who, and. Um, I, I, it seems like something that would have been a, a major influence on Pratchett, even if he's not crediting Susan as the influence there, just given its, you know, prevalence within British science fiction. But I do think the uh, the window for me to get into Doctor Who has perhaps passed, because I, I went back and I, I watched an episode because in her unauthorised essays on Pratchett's women, uh, Tansy Rena Roberts likens Susan to the Doctor's later companion Clara in the 2012 Doctor Who Christmas special, The Snowmen, uh, claiming that she has to be at least partly based ...based on Susan Death, who she resembles far more than Mary Poppins. And and I watched this episode and I thought it was pretty good. Um, And and there are some parallels to Susan um, here in that there's, you know, discussions of belief. There's Clara telling children um, stories. She's she's this governess character um, who has another voice, but it's not this Death voice. It's like her working class Cockney voice. Um, and, And I think, I don't think there's a reference to Susan here at all. I think this is just general riffing on Mary Poppins and Dickens... I did wonder if perhaps this episode came after the Hogfather series, that it might have been influenced by that, but this was six years later. So I, I really don't think there's much of a connection there. It's just sort of a parallel uh, development there. But talking about the actual book, uh, Robert's comments that even if Susan is magnificent in Hogfather, she is once again relegated to the role of helper, mentor, tidy uproarer of disasters, and isn't allowed to play with the plot relevant main characters for more than short births. It's
1: funny when he describes her as a goth Mary Poppins. The, the irony is that Mary Poppins is busy trying to persuade children that they need to believe uh, um, and trust their imagination and buck the system. Whereas Susan is horrified by some of the things that her charges have been taught to believe without purpose. Mm-hmm. She's got a lot more uh, uh, um, uh, gumption, but I think also appreciation for the for children's future than uh, a than Mary Poppins character does. Uh, why do you think Susan doesn't want to embrace
0: her heritage? Yeah, it is a bit of a sticking point with me about Susan's character in general, that I don't really understand why she's so, determined not to believe because it's always strange when we have these sceptic characters within Discworld where the premise of Discworld is everything is real. So, like, Susan lives in a world where magicians and witches and things are real, but, oh, a truth fairy would be a ridiculous story, like, especially after she's encountered death and things, and, like, there is the development of her character that she comes to accept and embrace these things. But I sort of thought after Soul Music, where she's been on this adventure, she's engaged with the magic, she's done the reaping and all of that, and then at the start of this book, she's like, oh, I just want everything to be normal. Like, I didn't really understand, like, why she wants it to be normal. It would seem more... Fitting with her character to go. Okay, this is the way things are, and I'm going to incorporate it, which she kind of does. I don't know. I think the Susan's resistance to magical things and myths and stuff is is a little bit contrived.
1: I, I agree with you, and maybe maybe it portrays uh, uh, our particular attitudes. But um, I think both of us think that death is pretty cool. So I, I think though that it, it's it's actually quite incongruous because. Uh, at least for us, well, Death is personified in the in the Discworld series. He's mm-hmm. cool. He's, I'm not gonna say hip. But he's certainly nothing to be ashamed of uh, in a world where uh everyone seems to have their uh, uh their kink and their secret uh, um their secret shame mm. um that seems to be Agmorepork the city where everyone runs away from whatever it is they came from into a great giant melting pot um but what's Susan running away from? It seems that she's running away from everything about herself she's running away from her status as a duchess. She's running away from her heritage. Uh, uh, the, the reasoning is never seems to me to be really clear as to why she isn't leaning in, at least to start with.
0: Yeah, I get that, like, her running away from her, her heritage and things and maybe being embarrassed by Death, because he, he, Death is, we think he's cool, but he's not cool. Like, he's a dork. But, <laughs> so I get that. But it's more just like, yeah, she's in Pork where there's, what, what's it called? The the Street of the Gods or whatever, where the gods, like, show up. So if gods exist and, and it hanging out in the street and she's met death, like, why wouldn't there be a tooth fairy? It just, that that connection never really, or a hogfather, that that connection seems, there's a step missing there. And I'll
1: add one thing. Ordinarily, at least as a, as a classic literary trope, uh, where someone is running away from their uh, family or heritage, it's usually because they're running towards something else. So, uh, mm-hmm. a character runs away from an arranged marriage because they're looking for freedom. Well, what Susan is running away from uh, doesn't seem to be bounced with anything she's running towards. She's got no interest in fitting into uh, a normalized society, in getting married, in pursuing any of those other other uh, um, other career paths, so to speak. She is uh, um, sitting around, as Pratchett points out, she, being, a, a du- uh, being a duchess, the role of a governess is just something you do to bide the time. Mm. Susan is a, is a loaded plot gun rather than actually having uh, to start with a mission or a drive of her own.
0: Yeah, I agree. Like maybe there's a lot of cra- criticisms about how susan is this passive character in a narrative and maybe that's because she is a passive character like i talked in the the previous episodes on soul music about how she's like a bit of a a foil or a contrast to imp in soul music where he's running away from his heritage to uncle morpork to become a famous musician and that she's sort of doing the same thing but as you said yeah that she's not running towards anything susan just sort of Floats, um, mm. and she mostly just wants to be left alone. I, I can I can relate to this. Like I think this is a real character. It's not that Pratchett couldn't come up with anything for her to do. This is that is who Susan is.
1: Uh, I, I I think you're right, but I think from a from a uh, a plot structure perspective, um, Susan operates as our eyes and our way of engaging uh, with the rules and the uh, not so just the rules, the metaphysics, but also the plot. Susan asks. The questions that we need asked so that we understand uh, um, the, the cleverness of what fractured has constructed, the mechanics of teeth as a power source and everything else. Uh, all comes to us through Susan. So her initial passivity really uh, works to help create the threads that hold the novel together because it's through Susan that we're taken through all of the key events, even if she isn't a a motive force for change in the way we might today expect uh, um, a Mary Poppins-type go-getter to be.
0: Um, Yeah, so something else Robert says about Susan in Hogfather is that her interactions with the O God of Hangovers follows the pattern of Susan's super subtle romance Um, in the other books and notes that the Oh God falls humbly in love with someone else over the course of the story although Robert says that to be fair this one is so subtle that she's not even sure it's supposed to be read that way Um, so I do think this is perhaps a more valid criticism of Susan in that the romance with Buddy and Soul Music wasn't really developed um, and then just sort of disappears from this book right and then the one of the few criticisms of um, Thief of Time that I have is that her implied romance with Lob saying like I don't think it's developed at all. And then at the end of the book, it's like, oh, and then they were in love. Um, like I do think Susan's romances aren't implied. But I didn't really think of her and the O God of Hangovers as, as having a romance in this book. No, I, I fully agree with you. I think that Susan here is is a maternal figure, uh,
1: um, and to some extent a, a, a filial figure developing a relationship with her grandfather. I didn't see her as being a, a romantic figure really at all. No. Um, you know, in, in other books, in other books she she is in that position. But I think here, Susan is in a a holding pattern in her life, She's not looking for uh, uh, you know, any of that kind of relationship. Her, her most emotionally uh, expressed relationship is with the children. Mm-hmm. That's that's where she seems to be putting in her her energy. You know, the the times when she's really passionate is her anger about what the previous governess has done to mess these poor kids up. Uh, I think that that's the the um, love element in this book. And if any kind of emotion drives Susan, it's not a romantic love. It's a it's a maternal love at least in this novel.
0: Yeah, it did seem like the O God was just like another one of her charges that she had to manage and guard rather than a romantic interest. But I mean, maybe if I went back to the book there'd be something there, but I didn't really read that relationship that way. But Robert says that what most irritates her about Hogfather is not that Susan isn't the protagonist, it's that there's no protagonist at all, or if there is, then it is the crazed assassin uh, Teatome, who is a very unpleasant character to follow around. So, as Kiki V. Cannon points out in her 2018 master's thesis on Pratchett Gaiman and the personification of death, Susan and Tea Time are both orphans, given elite boarding school educations, but considered strange by others, who find themselves drawn into the world of the supernatural. Both are calculated, serious individuals. However, where Susan took the completely sane option posited by Pratchett, Tea Time is quite insane. He delights in all the things the death of the Discworld and his family abhor. He is cruel, power-hungry, and completely without empathy where death is concerned." Um, And you've already sort of touched on some of this, but I I did want to take a moment to sort of, if you had any more thoughts about Tiatame, because I don't really know what to do with his character. Like, as you said, he is the the ultimate sane man. He's this precursor to Kasa and things. But I just don't have much to to say about him. And I don't really, like, I don't get the the tea time joke. Like, I get that they're making fun of his name because it's spelled that way. But Pratchett decided to spell it that way to make this joke. And I don't know why. Like, is this an allusion to something? What What does tea time signify?
1: Uh, I think that that actually Pratchett approaches book in an almost upside down way. He's first come up with a uh, with a an absurd but possibly uh, um, real within the world of the Disc world hypothetical. Hey, how do you kill the Hogfather? And he's then co- created characters or, or brought the characters in around it to observe and allow the story to be told. Mm-hmm. Tear time uh, um, is both therefore a joke, but also something that has to not quite it right i think that the 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 joke and i could be misreading this the fact that tear time isn't even pronounced that way Mm-mm. is uh, is itself the joke. He is a character that could so easily fit in, but has to stand out, has to find the way, uh, uh, has to elect to be uh, of the other. Mm. Uh, uh, and that and that canon quote I think uh, uh, highlights it very nicely. He is given all of the tools to fit in perfectly well. He's given elite education, but he'd rather kill the dogs rather than you know do things in a in a Anyway.
0: Yeah. You said something there and I thought you were going to go in a different direction. So now maybe I'm, I'm crediting you with something that I'm now going off. But the idea that there's something beneath that, it, it isn't pronounced that way. There's something beneath the surface, right? Th- this is sort of like Watch and Christmas itself, right? That we think it's this thing, but actually there's this thing beneath it, right? That we think it's tea time, but there's actually this thing beneath it. But then that says, okay, but he is right. Like if Pratchett's placing the emphasis on the tradition and the the underlying things and saying, get rid of the what we're, what we're imposing on it, and what's underlying is important, then um, we should be calling him Teatome rather than Tea Time. And this did kind of stick with me. Like, Tea Time sucks. Like, he's a psychotic murderer. Like, I don't think he's irredeemable, unsalvageable as a character. But there is something there where all throughout the book, people are horrible to him. All he wants is for people to call him by his proper name, and people won't do it, right? They don't accept him. Like, no one is extending a branch to him at all. They're just mocking him constantly. Um, Yeah, Everything you said is is right, absolutely right, and I
1: wish I could claim credit. Uh, uh, but I would just add at the end, we're not coming in at the beginning of a, a Tea Time story. We're coming in at the point where he's already committed a bunch of uh, horrible and gruesome murders and demonstrates his willingness to casually commit acts of violence just because. Mm-hmm. Instead of shoving Ernie out of the cart, he decides to, you know, stab him through. That's to Time through and through. So people, I don't, I don't think that that um, people are misjudging him. They're, uh, well, perhaps underestimating him, which is, you know, why they don't run screaming in terror the first moment that he appears in the bar. Um, yeah. But he's 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 certainly uh, uh, not a not a character deserving of sympathy. But you're absolutely right about about uh, him uh, highlighting perhaps what is real. I think that, that it's perhaps uh, useful to look at Susan and tea time as two contrasts as. Two. Two, uh, um, two sides of a pendulum swing back and forth, both in terms of the way the narrative switches between them, but also in terms of of their uh, uh, philosophy and uh, very much their sight, the way they look at the world, and also their second sight. Uh, uh, tea Time, ironically, only sees through one eye, but mm-hmm. the way he sees through one eye uh, is, is re- remarkable. Uh, and to quote, the result was disconcerting. But what bothered Lord Downey far more was the man's other eye, the one it might loosely be called normal. He'd never seen such a small and sharp pupil. Tea Time looked at the world through a pinhole. And that really seems to be at the centre of, of, his, of his character. His capacity to uh, um, deconstruct the universe comes from a very peculiar, narrow set of a uh, set of uh, ways of looking at the world, in which he's both gained, given the advantage of, if you like, tunnel vision. He can solve problems that no one else can. But he also can't really see how the world fits together. Whereas Mm. Susan sits on the complete other side of this. Susan can see what is really going on. She can see the things that other people can't. She can see the boogeyman. She can see the bears. She can see all of the mechanics. Those two characters uh, uh, meet in the middle uh, near the end of the book. But each of them also has a a fundamental choice that they're making. Susan sees what's really going on with the world and she chooses to care. Tear time is able to deconstruct society yeah, and look also ironically like Susan from it, as an outsider, but he chooses not to care. He chooses to prey on society, to manipulate people's rules, uh, both the written and the unwritten ones. Uh, and that really, I think, is is the core of the, the moral contrast in the book. But it also highlights what makes Susan good, because Susan chooses to use her her uh, uh sight and her position to do what others can't or won't. time chooses to use his advantage to do what others can't or shouldn't. I think the message of the book for, from Pratchett's perspective is um, it isn't enough for us to exist to only look at what is. We have to postulate the elements of belief and operate with their existence. Uh, uh, to paraphrase, if there wasn't a God, we would have to invent one. Mm-mm. If Christmas didn't exist, then we would have to invent it in order to make society work in order to enable us to believe, as uh, death puts it, the big lies. Uh, um, now, whilst I don't share Pratchett's philosophy or his or his metaphysics, uh, Tear Time shows his limitation in that he can't operate or adopt those metaphysical ideas. He recognises that other people have them, and he abuses those powers of belief uh, to do, uh, you know, to attempt to, to, to kill the hog father, to, you know, go after the tooth Fairy, everything else, but he can't adopt them, and that where his uh, um, his failure occurs. He can only see the world through that little pinprick. He can't actually understand how it all fits together by being, well, sorry, he can understand intellectually, but he can't be part of it. And if, if there's any reason to have sympathy for him, it's that he can't become part of society. He is locked out by his uh, his peculiar approach to the world.
0: Yes. Of course, there is a another foil for Susan in Hogfather, uh, Beyond Tea Time, which is the auditors who state in Hogfather that they have a duty to rid the universe of sloppy thinking which echoes Susan's earlier desires in Soul Music to rid the world of fluffy thinking and I think that is a like if a lot of the parallels between Susan and Tia Tomei are implicit like Pratchett's being very explicit about this one and saying that the auditors are the logical endpoint of Susan's skepticism and that if she is lacking this belief in in Hogswatch and, and if humans are lacking belief in Christmas and festivals and all of that then they are they are incomplete and pure rationality um, is untenable, malevolent even, which is a jumping off point for us now to talk about the, the nature of belief. So in his 2014 book, Fantasy, Politics, and Postmodernity, uh, which we've mentioned a few times already on the podcast, um, Andrew Raymond compares the conclusions about belief encouraged by Pratchett's hogfather and small gods to that of Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek in his 2006 book, How to Read Lacan. Now, I've discussed Žižek and Lacan before on here, and I don't particularly care for either of them. Raymond is drawing on Zizek's conclusion that uh, what both liberal skeptical cynics and fundamentalists share a loss of the ability to believe in the proper sense of the term, which is dangerous because the status of such values as human rights is that of a pure belief. They cannot be grounded in our knowledge of human nature, that they are an axiom posited by our decision. And Zizek paradoxically, um, I would say contrarianly, argues that it is the humanists who stand for belief while the fundamentalists stand for knowledge. Now, I think Raymond has some more interesting things to say here about uh, Small Gods, which I'll revisit when I get to that book. Um, but this is the angle he's coming from, and he then applies, or attempts to apply this philosophy to uh, what I am calling the Doki Doki quote of Hogfather. Um, the Doki Doki quote, as I've mentioned on uh, previous episodes, is this is, do you know Super Mario Bros. 2, Nadav? I do indeed. All, right. All too well. Many hours of futility. Right. So you, you, if you've discussed this with anyone, you will be aware that Super Mario Bros. 2 was originally Doki Doki Panic and then got changed to a Mario game when they brought it over to the US and so this is a reference to anytime you mention Super Mario Brothers 2 someone has to jump in and, and tell you that little tidbit so I have then taken this to the Doki Doki quote is the quote from a book that any piece of scholarship will quote every single article I've read about Hogfather has quoted the same quote which in this case is Death's monologue uh, to Susan at the end about what would happen if children stopped believing in the Hogfather which I've got here do we want to do this as a dramatic reading sure do you want to be Susan or death? I think I think you've got to be death. I couldn't Oh, okay. Susan, I was okay. going to say death. you should be yeah. death, but all right, I'll be death. <laughs> Okay, so yes, when explaining what would happen if uh, children stopped believing in the Hogfather, Death says, now I've got to do a death voice. The sun would not have risen. A mere ball of flaming gas would have illuminated the world.
1: You're saying humans need fantasies to make life
0: bearable? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. As practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies.
1: So we can believe the big ones?
0: Yes. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. Take the universe and grind it down into the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, you can act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that or what's the point? My point, exactly. I think I I started off doing James L. Jones, says Mufasa, and I think I ended up more in a Christopher (laughs) Lee realm, but we'll see how that goes. Um, So yes, this is, despite there being, you know, 100,000 other words and 400 other pages in Hogfather, this is the passage that every single article quotes. And as Raymond claims, this is an extraordinary extract, which seems outrageous until read alongside Zizek's passage on the loss of the humanist ability to believe, which I think is an insane quote to say that this only makes sense in light of Zizek giving, I think, how fundamental this sort of idea is to ideas and philosophies dating back forever, as we're about to discuss.
1: I admit that I found uh, this passage to be anticlimactic and so incredibly, incredibly cynical. Uh, okay. And I do come from, from a faith uh, tradition uh, and a, a point of belief that sees justice as a um, uh, not human justice but divine justice as a fundamental element to the creation of the world. Mm-hmm. So this didn't uh, jibe with either how I see the universe uh, or uh, my lived experience. But but fundamentally, uh, um, at the crescendo of the novel, uh, Pratchett doesn't give people hope. What Pratchett says is, eh, we, if we pretend long enough, then we can live with it. I found that to be just uh, such a such a, a, a letdown, but I think a truly believed letdown, and and well well delivered. Um, but it, within the context of the of the structure of of the uh, disc world that Pratchett has created, belief is actually a measurable force. Yes, that's what's ironic.
0: That is something that doesn't like with Susan not being, being skeptical about tooth fairies and things. Where it's like, yes, but belief has like tangible power, I discord, demonstrable power. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting and, I, and I'm glad that we have you on to give that opposite perspective, because yes, coming at this from, from I guess, an, an atheist point of view, this makes a lot of sense to me and I think ties in with the um, Sartre and existentialist philosophy stuff that I applied to Reaper Man in the previous episodes that if you begin with the premise that there is no divine creation, there is no inherent justice in the world, then you have two options. One is either despair, right, everything is pointless, or and, and this is where I read this as hopeful and these philosophies as hopeful like if that's your starting point well then it's on you to create it Um, and I think this can be applied to a belief system as well that even if there is a God and there is like inherent justice and things that we still have to act on it you still have to create it in the world yourself you can't rely on um, divine powers and things but that is a good point as much as this book is about belief and and all of that this is a definitively um, secular view of it this this monologue here let me let
1: me take you back But take you back to Reaper Man for a moment. And Uh don't we ultimately see in Reaper Man death as a character who has hope and belief when Uh he goes to the the archangel and, and pleads for a for a consideration Mm -hmm. for something above the the rules of the game for uh, um, an indulgence. He does so with hope. Now, hope is the ultimate act of belief. It is a point of expectation beyond uh, um, calculation. So, Death Bekir is uh, cynical beyond belief.
0: I don't think so. I think this is a hopeful passage. I think he is hoping that humans will believe and create justice in the world. I think that is a positive, hopeful statement. The death is not saying they can't create justice. He is saying justice exists because of people. Like it is a expression of the inherent good in people, and saying that people are what makes the world good. See,
1: there, there, I, uh, I, I take, uh, I take issue with you, Josh, uh-huh. uh, because as the quote reads, mm-hmm. as practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies mm-hmm. so that we can believe the big ones. Yes, justice, mercy, duty—those are seen by him as lies. The big ones. And and uh, um, the reason why he then wants us to uh, uh, believe the big lies is because otherwise uh, people despair. Yes, uh-huh. but people have got to believe that. Or what's the point? My point exactly is what death says without the reverb, which I, I hope you'll, uh, you'll <laughs> ensure that we have to properly judge it. It's an opiate of the masses uh, um, argument. Look, uh, mm. in, in fact, it's exactly the sort of argument that you would expect a caring death to be making, which is life is hard, life is horrible. Uh, I see you all suffering. I hope for your sake that we can at least alleviate the bitterness with a, with a falsehood that makes everything seem easier.
0: I get that. I think death, and this is a, a humanist, I guess, is the word rather than um, uh, secular, what I was saying before, because Pratchett is, I think his beliefs are very specifically humanist in that humans are what create value. But he's saying belief is what elevates you He's using lies Metaphorically, and we'll get into this later. But he's not saying that nothing is real; therefore, humans are all liars, and we shouldn't believe them. He's saying that these things exist because people believe. That belief is what elevates humans.
1: I would just add that uh, Mm -hmm. when we look at the death cycle, the one thing that seems very clear is that death cares for humanity. Yes, and that's what the auditors can't understand. They can't understand why a a, a force of nature, or even the personification of a force of nature, should care. but death wants humanity and humans to as much as possible not suffer um, yeah. so i i wondered not about whether uh, um, death has a humanist instinct but whether he is trying to alleviate the difficulty or create something of intrinsic value uh, and whereas from reaper man i would have said the latter uh, taking the, the our uh, our dokie-dokey quote mm-hmm. i think that he, at least quite literally he's looking for a way to ease people through
0: yeah and i and i agree with that like i think yes the despairing response is to become the auditors the hopeful response is to become humans who tell stories like if if you replace the word lies with stories in that um paragraph which i think is what he's getting at um does it perhaps become a bit more hopeful
1: i think i think if we replace it with stories you're
0: absolutely right yeah because lies are definitively false, where stories can be true.
1: I will take issue, though, also with what you just said about the auditors. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the auditor's approach is despairing. I think the auditor's approach is one that doesn't allow for hope. Yes. There's no potential for despair in the auditor's world because there's no potential for hope. There is merely reality. Now, for us as people of hope, that is a, a truly despairing position, uh, mm-hmm. um, the, the disadvantage with death's approach is that you can be disappointed. The advantage is that you can be pleasantly surprised. There is something worth fighting for. The auditors are, are saying none of that uh-huh. matters.
0: Yes, I think I think we are reaching the same uh, conclusions, but we are having problems with the expression, which perhaps makes more sense. I mean, Raymond's saying this can only be understood in light of Zizek, but this is a direct echo of, of earlier philosophies um, that is hinted at earlier in Hogfather when Susan tells Twyla that, yes, Twyla, there is a Hogfather. And this parodies a famous editorial titled Is There a Santa Claus, which was published in the December 1897 edition of The New York Sun in response to a letter from an eight-year-old girl named Virginia asking if Santa Claus exists. Um, and in the editorial, editor Francis Parcellus Church famously warned that Victoria's disbelieving friends had merely been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age and responded, Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they are bound to give your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there were no Santa Claus? There would be no childlike faith and no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in the sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Right? That's the sun not coming up. You tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil covering the unseen world, which not even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, poetry, love, and romance can push aside that curtain view and picture the supernatural beauty and glory beyond. In all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus? Thank God he lives and lives forever. Um. So, death's speech, I think, is, you know, it's an it's an echo. It's a parody of this. A parody would say it's critical, and I don't think it's critical. It's a reproduction of this speech within, within Discworld, which is to say that Pratchett is is echoing these ideas about belief and specifically about Christmas that have existed for hundreds of years, at least.
1: I think it's it's worth looking at, at uh, Susan's uh, initial answer. Uh-huh. in in detail. Look at it this way then, she said, in, this is in an answer to the question uh, about whether or not the hog father exists. Wherever people are obtuse and absurd and wherever they have by even the most generous standards the attention span of a small chicken in a hurricane and the investigative ability of a one-legged cockroach and wherever people are inanely credulous, pathetically attached to the certainties of the nursery and in general have as much grasp of the realities of the physical universe as an oyster has of mountaineering, yes, Twiller, there is a hog father. I, I so I think that the contrast uh, um in her early bin Susan's early position uh, um is more substantial. I mm-hmm. think that is probably a real echo of uh, of this uh, um of this quote from Francis Church. I think that if you then sandwich the two, that transformation of belief and, uh, and the hog and death's response at the end it it tells a story about the the two i I think that that Susan she's that very strange skeptic character who knows that her skepticism is probably not justified. If anyone knows the hog father should exist, it's her. But she she tries to answer in a way that maintains belief. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is, is perhaps the riddle of, of Susan at the beginning. You know, we, we I don't think we ever really understand why she's in such denial about it, but I don't think for, that Susan does believe in, in the hog father at the beginning, or at least she doesn't want to uh, admit to a belief. She wants to answer the child in a way that won't harm the child's positive belief, uh, uh-huh. which I think is an echo of the of the church quote again, but she doesn't actually say that. That uh, um, that yes, there is a character, there is a person called dogfather. You know, she says, well, uh, uh, wherever people are stupid and idiotic, then sure, it's got to exist which I suppose is a way of saying that he must mm. exist because people will be stupid in degree, wherever they go.
0: Um, That's a good point. So, I mean, that, that, I'm going to say i agree with you that that is cynical. <laughs> I think death is, say is then flipping that and saying, but all of these things are worth and then brings hope to this, whereas, yeah, Susan is going, yes, there is a hogfather and he is for stupid people.
1: <laughs> well, if
0: tea time is the tool of the auditors
1: who are uh, looking at a post-belief or a non-belief world Mm-mm. where only reality is exactly is without hope of, improvement, uh, uh, success or failure exists, then Susan is death's instrument in this novel, going places where death otherwise can't. And therefore, Susan represents uh, um, the the tool in the same way as tea time represents the tool, the orders, Susan is the implementation of of, of death's philosophy. So, for death to be successful, he has to bring Susan to the point of belief. Mm-hmm. That really is is the story within the story. And Susan's story is coming to that point of uh, uh, embracing belief uh, as making the world just that little bit better.
0: Okay, yeah, I was going to save this for later, but in, oh, here's another name, uh, Maria Shashiko Cesiri, I don't know, I'm sorry, as she observes in her 2019 book On the Rise of Children's Fantasy Literature in the 20th Century, Church's response to Virginia's question offers a secular view of Christmas as an opportunity for a culture disenchanted by a rational and scientific discourse to reconnect with the unseeable values, longings, and sublime experiences that give life beauty and meaning, which I, I'm saying Pratchett then offers again almost 100 years later in Hogfather. I thought that was interesting because uh, she's projecting death's interpretation onto Church's editorial there. I guess I don't really have the context for it. I read Church's statement as a as a religious um, statement rather than a a secular one and probably a, a Christian one, but I read that as being a, a believer's statement. Did that come across to you that way?
1: No for, for me, uh, okay. for me it uh, comes across as a post-belief statement okay. very much so. I think it's a um, a difficult thing um, for an adult to be saying that yes, as a matter of belief there is a Santa Claus. And certainly not in a religious context. I think there's no element of, of you know Christian faith that I'm aware of that has our modern conception of a you know Coca-Cola branded uh, uh, fat man as, a, as an article of religion. You know, the concept of Saint Nicholas certainly appears in, in both Catholic and, and uh, Greek Orthodox uh, uh, church uh, teachings, but not in our conception of Santa Claus. Okay. Uh, not in the, the television conception of Santa Claus. So. How dreary would the world be if there was no Santa Claus, says Church? There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, we must believe it, because if we don't believe it, it would be a terrible thing, rather than we must believe it because it's true. I think that, ch- that Church is matching very much with the, with that uh, expression.
0: Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, as part of that Ciceri quote, she says that Church's response offers a secular view of Christmas as an opportunity opportunity for a culture disenchanted by rational and scientific discourse to reconnect with the unseeable values and and that jumped out to me in light of um some things you've said about hogfather because you lashed onto a couple of quotes about the way susan and tea time look at the world we've talked about this a
1: little bit earlier tea time and susan represent two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world for tea time it's a pinprick but susan sees everything that is uh, aggressively so um tea time sees only parts of things. He can identify anything that he sees, but he can't fit it together into that world of belief. Susan, on the other hand, sees creatures created by belief. Shit, that's what the poker is for. She's seeing go creatures made real by the power of belief. And mm-hmm. that, I think, is, is a fundamental uh, set of contrasts. Um, it also parallels the way that Pratchett has constructed Hogfather, which is as a book in which he, by squinting, manages to examine different, uh, different tools of belief altogether
0: Uh, yeah so the the two particular quotes she pointed out to me which is another contrast between Susan and and Tiatame, yes when introducing him it says uh, Tea Time looked at the world through a pinhole and then um, later she tells the god of Hangovers that remembering things that haven't happened yet is like looking at the future through a keyhole that she can see bits of things but you never really know what they mean until you arrive where they are and see where the bit fits in so they're both seeing sort of partial realities and then applying belief and and judgment to them and this obviously echoes, you know, things like Plato's forms, right? This is like one of the earliest philosophical ideas. This is Susan doing the allegory of the cave. Also, of course, echoes um, Paul and Corinthians saying, now we, we see the world through a glass darkly. That sort of idea that just echoes through all these different traditions and things. But as uh, Ceceri points out, Church's conception of Christmas and Santa also anticipates J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's notions about medievalist fantasy, which they argued in spite of their literal untruth contain and express more about the human experience. Experience than any list of facts could ever convey. And I, I will talk more about um, Tolkien and Lewis in the second episode. But this led me to a poem written by Tolkien called Mythopoeia. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. Right. I'm so not. This was first written in 1931 after a conversation with Lewis about the nature of belief. I think this is actually a, a pre-conversion Lewis where, where Lewis is playing the skeptic to Tolkien's professions of, of the power of belief and things. And then he goes and writes this poem, um, which he wrote in 1931 but it wasn't published until 1988. But this poem begins, You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star's a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain. Yet trees are not trees until so named and seen and never were so named till those had been. Whose speeches involuted breath unfurled, faint echo and dim picture of the world. And then later towards the end, he says, I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient. Before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends. And despite this being published later, Pratchett being a huge Tolkien fanboy, I think he would have been somewhat familiar with this. So yeah, this is like the the same sort of ideas being expressed by by Tolkien there, notably with the gesture towards a star's a star, right? It's not the sun. It's a ball of gas if you follow that trajectory. And what gives meaning to the world is belief and, and Naming and stories and things. Yes,
1: and it echoes with the right with the language as well. Humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Uh-huh. So I'd, I'd, I'd be very surprised if uh, uh, Pratchett isn't making a reference to that Tolkien poem uh, in in some detail. Well, spotted.
0: yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't think this is original to Tolkien because again, this echoes Plato and, and the Bible and all sorts of things. But yes, yeah, so we're we're getting this idea brought into the fantasy tradition well before Pratchett then comes out and proclaims it and I'm going to keep harping on this well before Zizek talks about Lacan in 2016 or mm-hmm. whatever it was. Uh, yeah so you're, you're, you've you brought this up there um, reference to the, the rising ape as part of death's monologue and the annotated Pratchett file on Hogfather points out uh, they say it echoes a line from zoologist Desmond Morris's book The Naked Ape uh, where he says that after evaluating humans from a zoological perspective he viewed his fellow man not as a fallen angel but as a risen ape a naked ape of remarkable resilience Energy and imagination, but an animal for all that—just another species for him to examine. And Pratchett claims he was unaware of Morris's prior use, which seems likely, uh, since the passage doesn't actually appear in the body of Morris's original 1967 publication, uh, but rather in the reflective preface to the 1983 new edition. So, yeah, this is Morris's statement is one of evolutionary materialism, um, with which Pratchett probably would have likely sympathised. Though I think Pratchett is as I guess we've sort of hinted towards, a bit more sympathetic to religious beliefs and and just the idea of belief in general, that a lot of skeptics and atheists and, and, you know, these evolutionary theorists, especially Morris, who is extremely reductive and dismissive during his uh, short evaluation of religion in The Naked Ape, uh, describing it as a strange pattern of animal behavior whose extreme potency is simply a measure of the strength of a fundamental biological tendency inherited directly from our monkey and ape ancestors to submit ourselves to an all-powerful dominant member of the group. He is equally dismissive of religion in the later preface, sheltered Puritans and starry-eyed escapists who are still gullible enough to believe the old fairy tales designed to keep superstitious medieval peasants in their place and would have been shocked by the deliberate frankness of his statements. So yes, here to me, Morris sounds like an edgy comedian who complains about cancel culture on their new Netflix special. And he even says, I was in no mood to compromise or soften my message. I wanted to tell the truth as i saw it bluntly and straightforwardly with all the usual waffling sidestepping and philosophical smoke screenings swept away so yes perhaps morris's special could be called something like let's be franked unsoftened or i would suggest engorged
1: oh dear but there's a lot there oh yes it really doesn't uh, um uh, other than the 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 coincidence of the of the uh, you know angel and eight preferences mm-hmm. doesn't seem to meet uh Pratchett's philosophy at all because above all Pratchett is a hopeful um, uh, philosopher. <laughs> he isn't cynical and bitter. Uh, um, he seems to see, you know, the, the good in most things rather than uh, uh, wanting to, you know, kick religion or the religious in the gut. Pratchett is, uh, in some ways, a, a comic author to the end, but he's, he, he's he's a comic who seems to take joy in making people happy rather than in finding a way of, uh, of you know, be, becoming an insult comic. He never goes there. Pratchett is ultimately, if not a, a believer, a wannabe believer. He wants to see good in the world.
0: And that is why I think I read Death's monologue as a hopeful one, when this is the contrast. This is the cynical, I guess, dismissive. Yeah, Pratchett, even if he is perhaps cynical and and saying there is no meaning in the world when you get down to it, Pratchett is specifically saying belief and religion, not only are they important to human culture, but they're essential. Whereas, yeah, Morris presents it as this, like you said, the opium of the masses quote, um, you know, that religion is this biological imperative to submit this was really sort of confronting in how distasteful and disrespectful uh, I, w- I was quite shocked by Morris's attitude in the in these passages
1: so, so Josh then let me let me ask you this um, you would agree that that um most if not all of Pratchett's heroes are fundamentally moral and morally driven mm-hmm. so where do you see the source of uh, uh, moral strength for Pratchett's characters coming from
0: you might have to narrow that down a bit
1: Sam Vine has a sense of of right and duty, for example. If, uh-huh. if that's a personification of his of his personality, it would be that sense of duty. Uh, death has a sense of of duty, but also a sense of uh, of morality. Uh-huh. Uh, not necessarily around Rincewind in the earlier, more comic uh, approaches, where he seems to be sitting around waiting for poor Rincewind to to suffer some calamity. But uh-huh. for most of the series. He has, uh, uh, um, he has uh, impulses to right and wrong. Where do those impulses come from?
0: The Vimes one is an interesting one, and, and I will get to the Watch series in about four years. <laughs> but having gone through it again, I've become a little bit sceptical of Vimes. He loves to beat up people and say that it that, that was right to do it because of the law. Uh, a lot of police brutality that is then washed away in, in the Watch series, and it's Vimes serves the law, which is a above the, the law, right? There's the spirit of the law rather than the, the words of the law. But there is a very particular law that, that Vimes is serving, I would argue. So more more on that in down the track. The death is clearly appealing to these more metaphysical ideas. And Death's catchphrase is there's no justice, that's just us. That's his whole thing, which to me, that's a humanist, existentialist statement of we need to create meaning. Um, And Reaper Man would say that every person is valuable and therefore the just thing to do is to care and treat people as individuals, right? I'm going to get into this more in the the second episode, uh, but it is very interesting reading Hogfather in contrast to the Witches novels, especially Witches Abroad, where Death is saying meaning comes from stories. Meaning does not exist without stories, right? Stories are what we create to create meaning. Therefore the the good just thing to do is to act out these these good stories. Granny Weatherwax's whole thing in Witches Abroad is not to treat people like they are part of stories, and that that is the worst thing you can do, because then you relig- uh, reduce them to this um, sort of robotic uh, existence, which is sort of what the auditors are doing. And obviously, characters are complex, and Pratchett's, they're not a mouthpiece for for Pratchett's beliefs, but I, I think that is a very interesting contrast there, that doesn't really narrow down onto any one way of looking at things.
1: Other than this speech, uh, um, this uh, um, justice mercy, duty are all lies uh, speech. I see death as perhaps the ultimate natural law philosopher within the Pratchett series. But that most of Pratchett's heroes have a uh, an innate sense of belief in justice or mercy or duty, if not all three, that there is right and wrong that the characters are motivated to achieve for its own sake because it's the thing to do. Though they personify it in different ways, which is why I think a uh, 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 Death's um, speech is such a such a shocker to me, such an anti uh, an anti climax of uh, of so much of of his, of, uh, of the character's thinking and, and beyond um but it's interesting that there's that mention of uh, um to circle back the mention of, of both the ape and, and the angel because um if we actually break it down uh, according to uh, so much of uh, uh, you know mysticism death is an angel. Certainly, in the Jewish tradition, the uh, um, the term for uh, death, right, which is a shortening itself in English from the angel of death, mm-hmm. is the Malach Hamavet, literally the angel of death, and uh, um, is a series of different angels on rotation rather than one angel in perpetual service as the as the scythe man, so to speak. Um, in our so in our novel, we have the fallen angel meeting the ape, and we actually have an ape too. I wonder how much uh, um, Pratchett is uh, is. Actually, uh, uh, playing on there because we actually have a character that is a, a well, a, a human fallen into
0: an ape. That's um, true. Who is treated as a risen into an ape? The oh, okay. It is strange now that you pointed out that the librarian doesn't really play a role in Hogfather.
1: Well, he, he makes this makes this a uh, you know minimal minimal appearance. Mm. Um, but it's interesting uh, again that uh, Death is referring to the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Where again in that Western. Uh, certainly both Christian and Jewish tradition Mm -hmm. death himself is is an angel. Um, The the, uh, origin idea of an angel across most philosophy is a personification of a force or even the, uh, again in some traditions not necessarily mainstream Jewish traditions, uh, um, the personification or the the animation to be more technical of of an existing role that has to be played within the universe. So uh, an angel isn't a a being with its own free will but a being that is charged to carry out a particular role whichever way you you talk about it you know dancing on the head of a a pin or any other philosophical conundrum um, death Being a being whose role is to ensure that a particular force and function within the universe is carried out meets that classical definition of the angel. Which characters in the book, other than death, Mm -hmm. bear the hallmarks of a traditional angel? Uh, Well, the Hogfather. Hogfather, Hogfather is is a god creature, not an angel creature. Good point. Uh, arguably, there's, there's there's again two two sets, and Hogfather really is a book of of lines of symmetry. But you have the um, uh, recently created quasi god beings, mm-hmm. such as the Veruca Gnome and Jack Frost, that uh, um, manifest mm-hmm. who are creatures with a specific purpose and duty, and they exist to carry out that purpose. They are semi-angelic, but on the other hand, the creatures that most closely parallel both a, at least to my understanding, a Catholic, but certainly a certain stream of Judaism's image of an angel
0: are the auditors. Yep. Um, The other one I wanted to throw out, and the one that I'm going to start off the next episode talking about how they're overlooked, what about the tooth fairy?
1: I don't think the tooth fairy is is angelic uh, at all in the way that that Pratchett uh, um, creates it, but is certainly uh, a force of belief. And ironically... A source of goodness in a, in a redemptive way. Uh, if there's ever a, a rising angel, you know, turning from boogeyman into protector, it yeah. is the uh, capital T, capital F tooth fairy in this, which I think is fantastic.
0: I, I'm going to talk more about this in, in the second episode. But you've sort of unlocked something there for me because a point I was going to make in the next episode is that all these godlike characters that are made gods by belief, if you believe in the Hogfather, the Hogfather is a, is a god, right? But tooth fairy stands apart in that it's an occupation. Death is an occupation as well, but he exists because of belief. It seems like if people don't believe in the truth fairy, it doesn't create a tooth fairy. Like, it's always an occupation, which then perhaps says that the truth fairy is the place where, very literally, the rising ape of, of human meets the falling angel in that a, a human occupies uh, a position that seems like it, it should be associated with the divine. <laughs> Sorry, you just said banjo up as God. Well, I mean, he is very literally <laughs> elevated beyond the, the eternal status. And and I talked about this in the, the Reaper Man episodes, because there we have, we not only have death as this like metaphysical, like you've got the you've got the real world, if we're calling that like base Discworld world, then you've got death who exists in sort of the metaphysical realm above that and then you have Azrael, right, who is the, the the death of deaths above all of that so you have these different layers. And that very definitively says there is a overall justice, like an inbuilt divine justice in the world, right? Um, that doesn't, that seems to not gel with any of the other Pratchett books, like that's the only time we get the appeals to the higher higher powers in in Discworld, um but it is very interesting because i brought up the there's no justice it's just us as death's, death's catchphrase um which i think becomes definitively humanist in hogfather but originally it is a it is the opposite originally when he says there's no justice it's just us the us refers to the metaphysical right there's no justice in the world there is just death there's just me and more and then that phrasing transitions <laughs> through mort's influence um to become there's no justice in the world there's just people which then I want to argue is that well Pratchett is arguing from the humanist standpoint that humans therefore create justice but it is interesting that all of that is happening and is being spoken by a metaphysical angel in a world where belief has demonstrable tangible powers like there's a lot of contradiction and complexity there and I don't think it ever quite boils down to a specific point like it is very strange to be preaching a humanist philosophy from within a world where belief has tangible um, demonstrable magical effects and there are metaphysical Beings that hang out in the middle of the streets. Like, um, I don't know if, if he ever comes to a conclusion, but it is certainly provocative. The irony, of
1: course, is that uh, um, there's a particular piece of uh, advice that Pratchett slips in uh, about mm-hmm. preaching uh, a humanist uh, philosophy, or in fact, being a bit too philosophical about uh, about things, um, which is the Quermian philosopher Ventre, who said, Possibly the gods exist and possibly they do not. So why not believe in them in any case? Which, of course, is uh, echoing a a Mm -hmm. certain French philosopher that we all know too well. And, of course, when he dies, quoting Pratchett, he woke up in a circle of gods holding nasty-looking sticks and one of them said, we're going to show you what we think of Mr. Cleverdick in these parts. So the irony, of course, here Mm -hmm. is that this is a world where um, breaching humanist philosophy too loudly uh, might just create some (laughs) secondary consequences.
0: Yes, Morris pretty definitively differs from Pratchett in his dismissal of the fallen angel aspect of, right? He's just focusing on the on the rising ape. The fallen angel doesn't really come into it for Morris. Um, although he does concede that religion has proved immensely valuable as a device for aiding social cohesion, and it is doubtful whether our species could have progressed far without it. But all of this is made somewhat redundant by the fact that Robert Ardrew described the story of man's low emergence as the story not of fallen angels, but of risen apes six years earlier than the original edition of Morris's naked ape um, in his 1961 book, African Genesis. Uh, which Time Magazine named the most influential non-fiction book of the 1960s for its popularization of the hunting hypothesis of human evolution, uh, which links the advent of human intelligence with meat eating and which you can read all about in relation to Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey and the broader evolution of science fiction in my book, Vegetarianism and Science Fiction, which should be out sometime next year. But that is to say that, yeah, that phrase already existed, so... The only reason I'm really latching on to Morris there is because the annotated project file brings it up. So, what does he mean by the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape? All right. So, this brings us back to the idea of existentialism, which I talked about before. I mean, on this episode now, but also in relation to Reaper Man and John Paul Sartre. Um, but there, that was very specifically secular en- existentialism, uh, from which the major modern branch stems from. Um, but as I mentioned in the Reaper Man episode, the other major branch of existentialism in Western thought is Christian existentialism, which begins around 40 years earlier with the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't really have much time or experience uh, with Kierkegaard, but I thought it was worth bringing up given the previous engagement with secular existentialism in the Death series, but also because a scholar named Jake Keeping gives a very broad reading of Hogfather in terms of Kierkegaard's philosophy in the 2014 book Philosophy and Terry Pratchett, which is tellingly titled Yes, Susan, There is a Hogfather. And in that chapter, he compares Death's declarations about belief to those of Kierkegaard, whose philosophy he summarises as being that the purpose of religion was to give meaning to existence. So my brief experience um, with Kierkegaard primarily revolves around his 1843 book, Fear and Trembling, uh, where he sort of develops and establishes a lot of his ideas, uh, which is this long meditation on the the binding of Isaac um, and sort of working through that from different angles and Kierkegaard concludes that there is no rational justification for belief. Um, that the whole thing with belief is that it, it is faith and that therefore belief requires that you take a leap of faith beyond the rational and that you just have to I think he uses the word abandonment um, this is where we get the idea of jumping into abysses and things like that and I I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. And Keeping compares this sort of idea to death statement about humans wistfully lying, that they are taking leaps of faith into the unknown to describe the world. But as Keeping also explains, Kierkegaard later refined his philosophy, contending that there were two realms of being. Uh, first, there was the eternal, which exists outside of time, and they see things that do not age or expire, so things such as God, angels, other divine beings, um, as well as abstract concepts like maths and logic. And this was in contrast to the temporal, which is physical beings which are subject to time and expire, which, yes, we discussed a bit about um, when addressing the nature of death in the Man episodes and the defining aspect of fantasy time in Buckton's exploration of the Bill Dunsterman and Campbell's hero's journey in regards to Mort. I don't really want to discuss these ideas here. I'm sort of throwing them out there in anticipation of Thief of Time, which I think does more um, directly engage with these ideas. But again, this isn't really something original, right? This again dates back to Descartes. And his meditations in 1641 about the soul body dualism, which is in modern ph- philosophy often seen as mind body dualism, if you want to take a secular approach. But more importantly, for Hogfather, is that Kierkegaard argued humans equaled a combination of the eternal and the temporal, since they were supposedly able to transcend the temporal through their eternal reason and imagination, which is to say that they are where the falling eternal angel meets the rising temporal ape. Look, I think that
1: Kierkegaard is one of those philosophers. That gets uh, used and abused. Mm-hmm. But one of the big challenges is the equation of belief and faith. Mm-hmm. Um- Those are not necessarily the same idea. Uh, The equation of belief, which is a conclusion that may transcend facts, but doesn't necessarily do so in faith, which is a conclusion which isn't necessarily reliant on facts at all uh, to each other, is is problematic. Um, In in Hogfather, for example, um, belief needs to be inspired by facts. Faith isn't dealt with in Hogfather at all belief is triggered when there is cause uh, the cause doesn't have to be uh, as you know we lawyers would say doesn't have to be adequate but it does have to be sufficient there has to be a reason you know uh, the kids don't believe just because someone says well there is a hog father they need something uh, um, in and of the world they need to see the toys they need to see something else that that actually uh, inspires them into belief uh, so from a from a structural perspective a, a belief is usually, uh, something that a person holds as true often very 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 strongly but it requires a basis uh faith in the uh in the more uh Christian philosophical realm is usually a, a, a conclusion that's some sorry, a a position held that is um invulnerable to facts now those two things are, are not the same um mm-hmm. Pratchett talks about belief this is a book about uh, the inspiration to believe and if anything from a from a philosophical Perspective, uh, Pratchett might just be saying, you know, give people a little nudge. It's not so bad to to give in to the to the mystery and the magic. It might, heck, it might even be good for you. Live a little, if you like. Take it, take it in, you know, whichever way you like. Whether it's from a strict analytical perspective that this is what is necessary in order for for society to work, or hey, the whole thing is much more magical when you know the pig that's uh, sitting in the rafters isn't animatronic but is real and is you. You know, whittling uh, on on the creatures below, the world is better that way. That that's uh, that's Pratchett's overarching message. I think is that whichever way you slice it, it's actually better to have belief. But he doesn't deal with faith at all. Faith isn't something that appears in I think any of the
0: Pratchett novels. Oh, Small Gods. Brother is adamant that. Um exists despite all the evidence.
1: You're right. His is, a, his is an illustration of faith that isn't connected. Uh, isn't connected with the belief structure. Uh, um, it is impervious to anything else. You're absolutely right. That is the classic. Uh, um, uh, certainly, evangelical Christian doctrine of faith um, mm-hmm. that it is not subject to disproof of any kind. Whereas uh, the, you know, for example, the Jewish notion of of, of faith, or at least in Hebrew, the terms that don't necessarily translate emuna. Uh, um, is connected with an echoing of, of reality. The Jews followed belief rather than the, that modern notion of faith. As a point of philosophical contrast, but uh, I don't think that that um, that the theme for death um, uh, ties in with the Kierkegaardian approach. As you mentioned before, death would be the absolute worst exemplar to try and bring forth any kind of... uh of argument about faith, because, for him, it's all a belief, right? Everything he says he knows from his own experience, from his own very existence. Death can't exactly deny the existence of the metaphysical or of the gods because, well, you know, he, he himself falls within that pantheon. So mm. and that, that's why I don't think Kierkegaard is, is a great philosophical tool for uh, for analysing uh sort of Pratchettian world and, and the rules that, that are being created.
0: Yeah, and to go back to your to your question about what, um, What does it mean, the fallen angel meets the rising ape? Because another precursor to this idea is um, the Aristotelian claim that man is a rational animal, which comes from the idea that man alone is capable of speech, that this expression of what Kierkegaard would call the eternal ideas, maths, logic, things like that, elevates us beyond other animals who don't have these capabilities. But I think the fallen angel part is a bit of a misdirect in this, because it sounds like it's and outreach to the eternal or religious things, but it is specifically a, a, a fallen angel, uh, which has inherent satanic implications, which I want to bring up because uh, Alice, the previous co-host on the, on the podcast was a Miltonist. When I say satanic, I mean Milton, Satanist, rebellious, satanic. Um, but the quote is very different if you say, where the angel meets the rising ape, right? That is sitting there as a benchmark. The, the word falling implies that that eternal divine aspect has been diminished in some way.
1: There's a difference between a falling angel and a fallen angel. That's true. Um, uh, and uh, Pratchett refers to a falling angel, whereas Morris refers to a fallen angel. Mm-hmm. And I think those those two things are, are, are might might be accidental, but might be deliberate. I mean, the the, the philosophical and and religious notion of the fallen angel is uh, is Satan. Absolutely, you know, the angels that fell. Mm-hmm. Very Christian, not Jewish. Uh, Context. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what Pratchett is talking about when he's referring to a falling angel, unless it's a contrast to the rising ape. I suppose that the direct parallel would be a fallen angel to the risen ape. The risen ape being uh, um, Mm. an evolutionary uh, uh, view of man as an ape that is, uh, you know, ascended as opposed to the the process continuing on.
0: I mean, to me, this is a Miltonic implications and whether they're intended or not, like they're there, that you see that that phrase, I think, hey, Milton, and if you want to take it out of like a an actual religious context and, and treat it as a metaphor of Satan as the, the rebellious figure, um, like implicit in that, to me, says that as much as Pratchett's saying you need to have this belief and you have to believe the traditions, the, the falling eight part is sort of implicitly saying that you need to question these traditions as well, if that is what the Miltonic Satan is meant to represent, that question of divine authority. So it's I think he's gesturing towards some kind of combination of we're not doing away with scepticism entirely.
1: Well, let's just take the the other part of the quote, uh, which is to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Um, Mm. Now, it's interesting that, that he's talking about humans needing fantasy and associating fantasy with the angel and the ape. I'm not sure uh, uh, which direction fantasy and, and imagination and belief are supposed to come from mm-hmm. um, because both contrasts would prima facie be incapable of fantasy or uh, belief, right? An, uh, an ape or a non-sentient or a less sentient creature is usually defined by an inability to, to uh, um, create a dream, to imagine, to talk about things that don't exist. And again, the notion of an angel as a being of, of, uh, uh,
0: of purpose also doesn't have dreams or desires. So I've got written here that Keeping also points out in a footnote that Kierkegaard often used indirect communication to present different perspectives rather than explicitly stating his own. And he compares this approach to um, more of a literary style than a traditional philosophical one, which, you know, I I was going to link into the idea of power of stories um, expressed in in Pratchett and and Hogfather. Um, But if we treat fantasy as coming from the, the falling angel direction... This is to say that fantasies aren't an accurate representation of the eternal or the divine or whatever you want to call it, but they are sort of the forms, the shadow version that then by understanding them, we can reach that higher thing, which brings us around to the the keyhole and everything. Um, So I think that has then set us up really well to talk about lies to children. All right, let's do lies to children. So yes, when I say lies to children, this is a concept popularized by Jack Cohen and Ian Stewart in the Science of Discworld series, wherein they note that as Death points out, In Hogfather, humans seem to need to project a kind of interior decoration onto the universe so that they spend much of the time in a world of their own making, that they bring pain, hope, despair and comfort to our culture, and that good or bad, they've made us into people. So the idea that humans need to abstract and obscure complex concepts in order to understand them was first discussed by Stuart and Cohen in their 1994 book, The Collapse of Chaos, and further developed under the guise of a lie to children. Uh, in their 1997 book, Figments of Reality. Um, they don't actually have much to say about it in Collapse of Chaos, but the idea is much more developed in Figments of Reality, where Stuart and Cohen use the example of how children told a story about how two molecules of hydrogen and one of oxygen get together, swap atoms and move bonds around and produce two molecules of water. And they say, this story is not true. It is a teaching myth, a lie mm-hmm. to children. It teaches us the ingredients and the relevant proportions, but it creates the wrong impression about the process that puts them together, uh, which then they just explain via an analogy to a literal ballroom blitz. But the point is that any description suitable for human minds to grasp must be some type of lie to children. Reality is always much too complicated for our limited minds, but we can get an idea of how the reality differs from simple equations and reaction networks by means of an extended analogy. And this echoes the concept of Wittgenstein's ladder, which was developed by the early 20th century. Philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein in his 1921 book uh, Tracticus Logico Philosophicus. Uh, which explores the relationship between language and reality. In the conclusion to the Tracticus, Wittgenstein writes that anyone who understands his propositions eventually recognizes them as nonsensical, and that once they have used them as steps, that they climb beyond them and must throw away the ladder after they have climbed up it, and that only then will they see the world aright. I bring this up because Stuart and Cohen specifically relate this idea to Hogfather in the Science of Discworld series, and I think they bring it back again in in the second one, where they say that for most purposes it doesn't greatly matter if traditional tales make no real sense. Father Christmas and the tooth fairy make no immediate sense but it's clear why children are happy to believe in such generosity and that while all religions are strong on tradition many are weak on sense if you take their stories literally nevertheless religion is absolutely central to most cultures make a human kit but this is kind of the opposite of Hogfather I think to me in that Hogfather is not simplifying ideas, it is aggrandizing them. It's not saying that you need to understand a ball of gas by being told it's the sun. In Hogfather, Pratchett's saying it becomes the sun by having stories told around it, that a ball of gas is elevated to the status of sun. The,
1: the complication is that Pratchett has created a world where belief actually makes things true, mm-hmm. as opposed to a world where um, simplifications, or as uh, you know Cohen is postulating, lies, remain that lies. Uh, you know, in in the disk world, that which is believed with sufficient force and vociferousness, or widely enough, is true. Those are the facts. Mm-hmm. The sun is a, you know, and to contrast with, you know, pyramids, for example, you know, have a giant dung beetle, you know, zooming through the sky. As a matter of fact, that's how the the, the mechanics of the disk world operate. So I think it, it can be dangerous to try and, and draw a conclusion and a parallel to, to truth and falsehood when this is a world where truth and falsehood um literally follow the story rather than the other way around. Uh, there's a broader message, though. Um, the I think that the real uh, uh, warning that um, Pratchett is giving is, be careful what stories you tell your children, because you can mess them up by telling them the wrong stories. You know, look at poor Twiller with her attempts to be cute and her, you know, wetting the bed as she... Uh, there's a lot of urine in this story, I have to say. <laughs> uh, that's uh, possibly another another discussion for another time. But, Fundamentally, as long as uh, as long as Pratchett is uh, is cautioning us about stories, I think it's about the wrong stories uh, because he sees all of these stories as having uh, uh, elements of truth that in turn have a power to persuade and a power to teach. I don't think he's worried about them being incomplete. Or to put it in a neater way, the only creatures that believe in avoiding a an analogy or a parallel in in this story of the auditors who are plainly the villains. It's okay to tell a partial truth, which in the practical world becomes a real truth by the power of uh, manner you know that the, a partial truth is still a truth uh, an inspiring idea is capable of of being a, a greater truth and that's okay we're not worried about lies if they if they
0: actually carry a truth with them for me the representation in hogfather again it's closer to such as humanist existentialism in that belief doesn't help us understand something beyond our understanding but it literally creates and gives meaning to the world and human existence though i can see yeah from the opposite Perspective, uh, using that sort of Wiccan science ladder analogy that you sort of build up to you get to something that was already there, which is where I was latching onto the idea that fantasy could be used to prepare someone to believe in the eternal. All right. I want to finish up on something kind of fun. I thought, uh, because in researching all of this, uh, when you look up scholarly papers on, um, uh, Christmas and belief and things like that, I, I came across a bunch of studies pertaining to, um, how belief in Christmas and the tooth fairy affect, uh, statements by children in, in court and also, uh, a study of um, beliefs in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy on Jewish children, uh, which I thought was very coincidental, given that I was going to have you on for the episode, so I thought these might be fun to discuss. So, in a 1978 study of the effect of the imaginary figures of early childhood, Norman M. Prentice, Martin M- Minorovitz, and Laura Hubbs found that belief in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy was unrelated to other indices of the child's fantasy involvement. Like Pratchett and Church, they argue that if we really want our children to develop a healthy understanding and mastery of reality, we must make it possible for them to enjoy childhood fantasies, and that parental insistence on denying the impossible dream makes the world a terribly unfriendly place, and that to hate reality is a likely consequence of being forced to give up fantasies too early. So there is some basis for, I think, the claims Pratch is trying to make in, you know, actual social studies. A later 1987 study by Prentice and David A. Gordon investigating Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy for the Jewish child and parent found that while Jewish children were less involved in in imaginary figures and their Christian counterparts, their parents' encouragement and commitment to Jewish tradition had no noticeable impact on the belief of those who did, and that concurrently uh, Jewish children discouraged from believing in Santa Claus because he was only for Christian children became sceptical when later introduced to the tooth fairy despite the lack of a religious association.
1: There's a, there's a lot in there, and I think it's a um, difficult thing to unpack across the enormous spectrum of Jewish belief from Orthodox Jews to Orthodox Jews to secular Jews and everything in between uh, but uh, at its uh, heart the uh, idea of convenient lies um, in teaching children isn't something that accords with Jewish philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and fundamentally that doesn't mean a lack of a belief in fantasy but it's a lack of a belief in fantasy as reality um, and uh, that also doesn't uh correlate with uh, a lack of belief in imagination um, you know imagination and the ability to imagine is uh, not the same as um confusing those imaginings with uh what is said to be true i think it's a it's a fantastically strange and difficult thing to raise children uh, and say uh there's going to come a point in time with those things that we told you were true before aren't um, you know we're going to build in a set of uh, truths that have an expiry uh i as a, a father of two yeah. young children I can't imagine uh, imagine doing things that way. Um, You know, when we talk about uh, anything with our kids, uh, it's not on the basis of saying, well, I'm going to re-educate them in a different way later, Um, which perhaps excludes me from really understanding the the Christmas tradition because I think that uh, for Pratchett, there's a certain wistfulness, um, you know, uh, looking at something that has been lost with adulthood when kids uh, uh, have those fun lives is stripped away from them. I think that that's probably a trauma that I'm not a part of, an intergenerational trauma that I'm not a part of, uh, um, of every generation being told, you know, remembering that moment when they lost their belief in a particular thing and that moment of innocence was, was taken away. I'll just say thank God that's not something that uh, that has been part of my upbringing or tradition, uh, but it just seems a little cruel to me to say, well, there'll Come a point in time when I'm going to tell you that there's no salt cake duck and no hog father and no veruca gnome. and each of those, uh, you know, things that Pratchett sees kids is lo- losing it just uh vanish from the picture. I think that's a little sad.
0: Uh, well, yes, a 1999 study, uh, by Jane Gill and Theodora Papa Theodoro uh, that I found would uh agree with you. This was a study into the perpetuation of the Father Christmas story is what they call a justifiable lie and they argued that the commercial and traditional rationales for the continuation of the Father Christmas story such as the revelation of an inner symbolic truth often perpetuated by fantasists and psychologists uh, did not seem sufficient to justify the ubiquity of adult encouragement of this belief. They don't really say why they just sort of like you come down like it's it's a bit cruel it doesn't seem very nice.
1: Well I I would have thought that the, the reason perhaps and this is pure speculation the reason that many adults are so keen to perpetuate the belief is that uh, um, they have experienced the pain of having it taken away from them Mm. and it's an act of love that they want to give their kids that happy moment which you know is intergenerational trauma writ uh, writ large in a department store but what can you do?
0: Yes the one I wanted to discuss with you uh, more broadly was the most recent study um, from 2008 by Gabrielle Principe and Eric Smith um, about how belief in the Tooth Fairy can engender false memories, uh, which I thought was rather brilliantly titled The Tooth, The Whole Tooth, and Nothing But The Tooth. And therein they examine how children's fantasy beliefs can affect memories of their experiences, finding that many children who believed entirely in the Tooth Fairy and, and Santa Claus and things like that often reported supernatural experiences consistent with the myth when asked to recall their encounters with the Tooth Fairy, whereas those who realized the fictionality of the myth recalled mainly realistic experiences, and those with equivocal beliefs recalled mainly realistic experiences, when asked to be truthful, but fantastical experiences when prompted to relate the tooth loss in a fun manner, suggesting that children's beliefs in the reality of the fantastic phenomena can give rise to genuine constructive memory errors in line with their fantasies, which I thought was a rather unnecessarily nefarious way of framing things, that these children are lying rather than having fun, which was the prompt. Um, But yes, contrary to Pratchett then, Principe and Smith therefore argue that fantasy actually hinders justice, um, and that for the judicial system to... To function effectively, witnesses must be able to separate memories for real events from those based on fantasy, uh, citing children's fantastical tales of magical preschool teachers who turned children into mice and took them on road trips to outer space, uh, which turned out to correlate to real world instances of abuse during the early 90s.
1: I'll put my lawyer hat on for a moment. Mm -hmm. I think that the proposition here is very doubtful. The legal system has long recognised that human memory is the least reliable form of evidence of all, and that Mm -hmm. eyewitness evidence is actually one of the worst sources of evidence we have because it's so inaccurate. Uh, What is important and critical for the legal system is uh, this idea of reification, that we make rules real by giving them force, and the assumption that these ideas are actual things rather than just rules. A a gross oversimplification of this is uh, is a rule that says you can't jail and when people obey th- that rule of no jaywalking that has the uh, effect of creating a wall on both sides of a road as if there was a physical wall because people are acting in accordance with the rule so law and society require the suspension of disbelief on on some levels and the adoption of structures of uh, operation on the basis of belief in common ideals common values and the probably fictional idea that justice will occur uh, uniformly in other words we need to be able to uh imagine and operate with concepts that aren't simply what is apparent more to us for the legal system to work and for law to work much more than we need to worry about uh, um, teaching young children uh, um, about truth and lies uh, uh, on that level. But but more fundamentally, what is missing from this study is any correlation between uh, um, teaching children about the truth fairy and their ability and reliability as uh, as truth tellers, as adults um, I think it's very difficult to correlate one from the other. And unless there's some suggestion that those kids who believe in Santa Claus are less likely to tell the truth in court, I don't think it's
0: really the biggest of our worries. You made an excellent Freudian slip there, where you said, uh the truth fairy," which might be yes. a, a good alternative oh, title yeah. for Hogfather. <laughs> well, well,
1: yes, <laughs> but but to circle to circle back to, to really near the beginning of where we started this this discussion is uh, uh, to your time is a man mm-hmm. who doesn't you know who doesn't have any illusions. He is the product, if you like, of no childhood uh, who at least as a suggestion you know killed his parents they died in mysterious circumstances which Lord Downey thinks in retrospect is something they should have checked with a little bit more uh, more detail he doesn't reify or have any of the conceptions that underpin a societal notion of law and justice which is if you like a shared illusion which at least Pratchett seems to suggest or death seems to suggest we need in order to get along and if the private of that is uh, some placeholder ideas so that we can uh, help kids get to a a broader idea, then I think that's okay.
0: Okay. So to to finish up, I just wanted to build off uh, the thing from the study where they said, you know, there were stories uh, children said about their teachers turning them into mice and taking them to outer space and things that coincided with real world abuse because, and I think this is completely coincidental, but in his annotations for the Art of Discworld book, uh, Prajit writes that Susan prefers to teach younger children children because when they go home and say miss susan took us to this old battle and there were men in armor and everything and you could see heads being chopped off and everything uh the parents are more likely to say what an imagination the child has than call the watch which in light of that study perhaps suggests an incidental uh dark side to susan but also it's interesting that we have the inversion here where the, the children are telling the truth but being dismissed as stories but more importantly and i think to bring us back full circle given that we started with susan um is that as canon notes susan's ability to see creatures typical typically unseen by sceptic adults is the one supernatural gift she allows herself as a governess. And the only bit of perceived childhood imagination that she does not try to remove from the children is the idea that monsters exist.
1: I think the neat conclusion is that Susan recognises that the power of belief is the one thing that is too strong to destroy. And uh, as uh, she, to paraphrase, uh, recognises, the children are damn sure that the monsters exist. There's no touching those kinds of certainties. And that possibly is uh, is comforting because uh, Pratchett believes and sets out a belief that certain things can become uh, b- beliefs that are so strong that they become fixed, they become untouchable, and they become real. So at the end of the day, if uh, in Pratchettian philosophy, uh, ideas such as truth and justice and duty can become so manifest that they are actual uh, physical things capable of uh, bending a poker uh, uh, with their resistance. That is a hopeful statement and not, a, not as depressing as, as uh, uh, you know, the start of the book might give us uh, reason to believe.
0: Excellent wrapping up. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on for this. My pleasure, Josh. And we're clear.